they don't need another hero, but they do need a guide. And, they, and what you did, what you illustrated there was the idea of asking them what they believe the problem was rather than telling them, I know what your problem is. And so therefore you invite a conversation, you invite curiosity, you know, by being curious, you invite their response and you engage them. And part of any good change management program is, you know, acknowledging their, helping them acknowledge there's a problem and getting a desire to, to want to change. Well, it's tough to do that when you're shoving the answers down their throat, right? Totally agree. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am to have my guest on the Delighted Customers show today. Brian Sander, who heads up CX for none other than AAA. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to, great to have you. And full disclosure, Brian and I know each other. We both serve on the board of directors uh, for the Customer Experience Professionals Association. And that's how we met. But I do want to, before, before I ask you about how you got into this crazy world of CX is I do want to do a, a plug for you because I got to see you present when we were in Orlando, which is right around where you, you are, if I'm not mistaken, um, and see you present. And you did this thing. I love the Heath brothers. I love switch. I love made to stick. I love everything they write. And you yeah. did this thing with the, with the rider and the elephant. Um, and you had like, I, the whole room was captivated. So, I was sold. I love the way you you took what they did and applied it to the world of CX. Wow, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. So speaking of the world of CX, I mean, tell us how what led up to doing what you're doing now and, and what it is you actually do now. Okay. Uh, I started from the customer operations side. And um, I'll just give the quick journey line. You know, I, I literally started my professional career wearing a headset talking to customers all day long, solving uh, support problems in a software company and stayed on that track and just, you know, continued to grow in terms of management uh, responsibilities in customer operations for probably the first decade or so, mostly in financial services and software. And after a while, you know, I started to think about what are the upstream issues that are causing all of these customers to have to contact us. And before we even had language for what we call CX now, you know, I, I would map out uh, customer journeys that should be improved and sort of go to my boss and say, hey, we got to fix these things. And, you know, there wasn't really language for it. Um, you know, but then as as the decades progressed, um, you know, net promoter became a uh, more commonly used business KPI. And sure. one of the, one of the companies I was at actually brought in the, the Bain team and, and the author of the ultimate question, Fred Reichel to, to implement really loyalty and NPS. And that really opened my eyes to the fact that you could make a full career out of going what I call upstream to design mm. better experiences before and, and prevent customers from having to have those, those painful needs to contact. So I stayed in financial software and sort of the arc 
transitioned to like hybrid roles where I was still running customer facing operations. But then in a couple of uh, software companies up in Boston, I ended up taking on sort of like customer loyalty company wide and bringing in like net promoter studies and creating end to end customer experience steering committees and just sort of shifted my focus away from operations over to like more strategic CX design. So at some point, uh, I decided to trade blizzards and snowstorms for hurricanes and sunshine. And <laughs> I found this opportunity with AAA down in Orlando, Florida. And so I've been here about six years and I was hired to create a centralized CX practice for the AAA brand. Uh, the teams evolved over time and we've combined a bunch of different things that I can break down, but I generalize as my area is responsible for uh, measuring, designing, and improving the member experience for all of our different vertical lines of business. So what that means in terms of reporting teams is I have the CX design group. I also have a market research team as well as uh, digital analytics and business intelligence. And then some of our product management functions for some of our digital channels, as well as uh, what we call member relations. It's like an executive escalations complaint resolution team, which is still an absolute gold mine of information, uh, you know, direct raw customer feedback that we use to, to drive prioritization of future enhancements to the customer experience. So that's a little bit of the journey and that's what I'm up to these days at AAA. Okay. And it's, it's interesting. And so that's, that's like five, five or six different groups, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, how, how many people are we talking about amongst all those? Yep. Uh, when I started, we were a mighty small team of two. And yeah, yeah. give or take, there's about 40 folks in all those different areas combined that I just described. Wow. Well, I know I know a lot of CX leaders would uh, tr tr trade a lot of things to get that that larger group to, to help support their efforts. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been rewarding. Uh, but also comes with increased expectations for results and accountability to drive improvement. You know, we're really happy with the AAA brand in terms of all the different ways we benchmark uh, loyalty versus comparable type organizations. You know, we are very often um, through third-party reporting and analysis, we're very often one of the top rated uh, most loyal brands in the country in almost all the verticals that we compete in. So, so uh, give give the audience some perspective or some context of AAA. How how big is AAA? Employees, customers, you know how many how many roadside events happen? Okay, sure. <laughs> um, there's a couple of ways to describe this. So we have well north of 60 million members. You know, we like to say well, one in four Americans is covered or is wow. a of AAA. Wow. Yeah, which is a phenomenal uh, privilege and responsibility but also indicative again of, of the brand loyalty. You asked mm. about roads, roadside service. We do roughly uh, 30 million roadside service events a year across the whole country. And I'll also say that, you know, most people hear the AAA brand and think of our hallmark service, which is, you know, flat tires, dead batteries, help at the roadside. That's only one vertical. We have a very large travel agency business books, you know, multiple billions of dollars of travel per year. Yeah. We also have a very large financial services business, including banking and credit cards. In fact, our members have access to one of the best 
um, no fee credit card offers in the market as validated by, you know, independent services that look at that sort of thing. Beyond that, we also have a large insurance business, both life and PNC. And then uh, we also have a vertical we call discounts and rewards. Most people will be familiar with show your AAA card and save was the old language. Oh, right. You know, we have uh, thousands and thousands of national partnerships that are extremely beneficial to save save our members much more than the cost of the annual membership. So point here being, you know, it's not just the roadside service business, but AAA is, is quite a large and complex organization with many different verticals. Wow. Well, that's 30 million events a year. That's like one out of every two members. It probably doesn't break down exactly that way, but still. Right. Yep. Wow. Okay. So um, when when you think about, you just shared your, your track from financial service software to other software, loyalty metrics, loyalty, and then working your way to away from the software side to the CX side, really. Mm -hmm. um, what? What would you what what would you say to the CEO or CFO who may be listening who is wondering whether they should dedicate a capital investment to CX? Like, why should I do it? Oh, sure. I, I like to say uh, customer experience management or CX work may be the ultimate growth hack. And what I mean by that mm. is, you know, the data is in and, you know, we look at data, but we also get data from, you know, Forrester, Gartner, you know, they all have sort of similar reporting that, that shows we now have decades of data showing companies by how strong their customer loyalty is and correlating that to how high their financial performance is. And it's it's no longer just a thesis. It's now well proven that you know industry by industry, those companies that have the highest customer loyalty, the best customer experience, are also the the strongest long term financial performers. So to me, I, I like to use language to describe the CX work as an accelerant to business outcomes instead of a bolt on or something else we have to do. That's the framing I often use. Yeah, an accelerant to what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, you bet. So there are a lot of people who get into the CX space. We're talking before we started recording uh, because they're connectors, they're service oriented, they're people people. And that's that's an important aspect of the work we do, you know, make the customer's life better. But it is about much more than just the warm fuzzies of, of making the customer feel better. You know, sometimes I, I remind my audiences that I, I'm formally trained as an accountant. That was my undergrad degree. So, you know, the bottom line calculations are always going here. And, and honestly, I, I truly believe that, you know, delighting customers is the best way to, to long-term financial results that outperform competitors. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a nice background to have is, is to think like maybe your CFO thinks. Yeah. Um, that's a great asset. All right. So, um, you you mentioned the metrics and um, and you mentioned the the correlation between good CX and good financial performance and I can't help but think since you mentioned Fred Reicheld, um, he was also a guest on the show a, a while back and he mentioned this earned growth model and in his book Winning on Purpose he said exactly what you just alluded to in in the I, the notion is that those companies that um, score well on CX, the CX leaders, leading companies, outperform the market like three times. Um, and they even, you know, he in his book, he took a somewhat controversial 
uh, take in comparison to the good to great companies and said they basically smoked the good to great companies, right? (laughs) (laughs) So there is your kind of hard evidence for doing it. And so, so assuming for a minute that someone's listening and they say, okay, heard you, Brian, I think I'm going to move forward with this. I'm going to go ahead and maybe I'll call you and see if you know anybody that can help me lead a CX practice in, in my organization. Where would you suggest they start? Yeah, I have a few ideas on that. Before we go there, so the um, the earned growth concept from Fred Reichel, I just wanted to circle back to for please, a second. Please, I, what I what I really like about that evolution as him mm. sort of being the you know whatever you want to call him a patriarch of of yeah. net promoter and customer loyalty. Um, the old net promoter just asks a customer their intent, how they will behave in the future. Are you likely to recommend? What I really like about earned growth is it actually measures loyalty based on their actual behavior. Did they mm. renew and did they recommend? And what was the either revenue brought in through organic retention or through organic acquisition that did not have to come from, you know, paid acquisition. And if I think about, especially on the B2B side, you know, the cost of acquisition for an enterprise customer, a single enterprise customer can be, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not half a million plus, depending on the vertical, as compared to, you know, what might seem by comparison to be a very reasonable investment to make an improving some aspect of a customer experience that will keep keep that enterprise customer loyal and renewing. So I, I really love the evolution. I, I have not yet seen earned growth um, put into practice in that yeah. many companies. We we have not yet done so at AAA. I'm quite interested in it. So yeah. I'm looking forward to learning more there, but I think it just makes perfect sense to go beyond the customer's stated intention about renewal and long-term relationship to watch their actual behavior. So yeah, probably moments after this gets released, you'll get a call from the friends of Bain saying, hey, we, we heard you're interested in earned growth. Okay. Yeah. Um, please have them, have them call. I'd love to learn yeah. more. Yeah. So you asked about how to get started. Okay. Um, I, I have a couple of sort of one, two, three, how would I, you know, an easy way to enter in the, the first step, if it doesn't already exist is to achieve what I call customer intimacy. So learn what customers really think of your brand, your product or your service. And in the old days, that would mean, well, you know, launch some sort of survey vehicle. That's still a very important sort of a a base level, if you will. But there are other fast, qualitative ways to quickly get a read on what's happening with your customer base. Mm -hmm. That could include some simple focus groups with groups of customers from, you know, different regions, different verticals, different demographics, um, which can be facilitated by third parties, or you can do them in-house if you have that. It can also include um, actually establishing some kind of a panel of a customer advisory panel, again, with representation across your different products or customer segments. And then Another tactic that is language I I still use from my old Six Sigma coach is ride the trains. And so the idea here is um, it's one thing for a group of executives to sit around the conference table and speculate about what customers think about their products or services. Sometimes it's a very different thing to 
go out and experience the brand as though you were a customer and try to perform tasks that your customers have to perform when in interacting with your brand. And this is low tech, low fidelity, simple, generally low cost and fairly easy to deploy. So a couple of examples, maybe. Yeah. Um, it, you This could mean go into a wireless cell phone branch office and try to add a new phone number to your plan. Um, it could mean go to your local grocery store if, if you're in that business. And here's a recipe you have to make for dinner. You have nine minutes to go get all these ingredients. Go and just, just learn from that. Um, at AAA, one of the things that we very much like to do is we encourage uh, leaders to actually get in a tow truck and do ride-alongs. And so, you know, that can just provide a wealth of information about, about the tech that's in the service vehicle that our driver is using to go fulfill service on the side of the road, but also about the member, you know, the member who is experiencing, let's say, on the side of a high-speed roadway at rush hour with, you know, groceries spoiling in the backseat or, you know, small children in the car. It just makes much more viscerally uh, uh, understood the experiences that you're delivering. So, you know, I could keep going on and on and on, but the right. point about Ride the Trains is it just provides this rich qualitative insight that can get you started and then can help you know where to focus. So that's a lot on customer listening, basically. But if you don't have... Yeah you know, both the systematic survey feed of data, and then also some of these qualitatives that I mentioned, I would say that's the very first place to go. I have it, more, but any any questions on that? Yeah, no, I just want to just quickly affirm what you said. We I worked at a bank for uh, about a decade. And one of the things we did was just that we had the executives called it executive listening, had them come to the contact center, and put the headsets on alongside like ride shotgun, Yep. with with the and they notice like not just the challenges that the customers had with day to day stuff like what they were calling about, but the challenges for the agents who had to access seven different systems to get an answer. Oh, and by the way, one of them there was no synchronous, so they had to call and wait for a call back for from the. The partner, business partner, um, and you know, frustration they could hear it ultimately in the customer's voice. It ultimately le led to the the final push, I think, through a, a major enterprise wide CRM type system uh, that costs over a million dollars. But at the end of the day, you know, you talk about the employee experience, the customer experience, all those things that you're talking about. And to your point, nothing really impacts us like empathy like that firsthand experience absolutely so you're stealing a little thunder on my second step but but i'll, I'll work it in oh i'm so, sorry so, no it's great <laughs> it's, it's because because what that illustrates to the listeners yeah. is like th there's common methodology to the cx stuff and so even though mark and i haven't spent that much time together we're both gonna sound like we're reading from the same track so th the next step once you understand some voice of customer or customer feedback I think is is map out the current state. And this, again, does not have to be a complicated six-month journey mapping exercise, but simply map out the stages that a customer has to go through for a given product or service lifecycle and, and, and just make that process visible. <clears throat> Once you've done so, 
then try to understand where there's the greatest pain. And this links into what you were just talking about. I firmly believe, maybe because I you know, grew up in call centers, but I firmly believe that the people closest to the customer can quickly tell you what are the top pain points most in need of addressing. So, so here I, I do like to do some, uh, you know, what's called YNs or call center listening, if you've got that function in your organization, and also just having uh, skip level type meetings with some representatives who are closest to the customer. It might be call center, might be sales team, you know, it might be some other function, but nine times out of 10, when you get those people in the room and ask them, what are the two things we need to fix first to dramatically improve for customers? They know the answer. And nine times out of 10, it's right. And then you get the double lift of having frontline workers feel like their voice is being heard, yeah. having management ask them for input that management then adopts or tries out. And then if the testing is successful, just imagine being that quote unquote frontline person who made a suggestion about a customer pain point that got adopted and then is deployed across a much larger group of, of customer-facing employees. It's like imagine the, the feeling that person has and the kind of organizational engagement that that creates within the workforce while also improving for customers. Yeah. Yeah. So two things I want to double click on there. I call them pulling out gems because sometimes people like you just roll through things and like, whoa, wait a minute, there is a couple of gems. We need to unpack those a little bit. Two things. Uh, one thing you said is it doesn't need to be a six-month journey mapping process. That is big um, because I think a lot of times executives uh, worry that this thing's going to go on and on and on. And unfortunately, you get rolled into the wrapper of other projects that never ended up with any kind of outcome. Right. And, um, and then the second thing, I lost my train of thought there for a minute because I was so excited about that one. Let me, um, let me, let me camp on that one. Yeah. Camp on Remember it, yeah. what your other one was. The, yeah. You know, um, there is a great one day training you could send someone to. I've sent team members through one at Forrester that's simply how to efficiently produce journey mapping. And once someone's gone through that half day, I think it was training, they can come back and again, in, a few hours, probably get a rough V1 for journey mapping the current state. Now that's going to vary by complexity of your business. If you're a physical product retailer that's single location, single threaded, you know you could get really, really high fidelity journey mapping in a very short time. If it's a global enterprise with thousands of SKUs or just information products and you know multinational, obviously you're going to have to break that apart, and it will take longer. Yeah. I remember what the second one was, um, which is engaging the front line and this idea of asking their opinion. And one of the things that that I've really grasped onto is this idea as a CX leader, as a trusted guide, a guide rather than a hero. Like the hero's story is that, you know, they don't, they don't, need, they don't need another hero. But they do need a guide, and the, and what you did, what you illustrated there was the idea of asking them what they believe the problem was, rather than telling them, "I know what your problem is." And so, therefore, you invite a conversation, you invite curiosity, you know, by being curious, you invite their response, and you engage them. And part of any good change management program is 
you know, acknowledging their, helping them acknowledge there's a problem and getting a desire to, to want to change. Well, it's tough to do that when you're shoving the answers down their throat, right? Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. So I love, I love uh, that example. Now, the truth is that we run into obstacles, all kinds of obstacles. Once, once we start moving forward, one, one simple reason why, and there's a bunch of reasons why, one simple reason why is people don't like change. Now, if you were in financial services, you know, bankers hate change, <laughs> right? But, but people in general don't like change. So, so when you run into, whether it's just a aversion to change or other things that happen, competing priorities, what, what ideas, what recommendations would you have for people? Yes. Um, I'm going to deploy some empathy for those bankers you just mentioned. So, so that's actually the, the first step is put yourself in the shoes mm. of the constituent or the stakeholder that you're trying to influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, bankers may hate change, but they're actually operating in a highly regulated environment and they are yeah. incented to de-risk the operation in the business. And so Understanding what's behind the perception that they don't want to change is an example of where I always tell people to start, which is do empathy internally on the stakeholders that you need to to engage and to to win their support. Hmm. That that's sort of the first step to removing obstacles. A second is don't use all the CX language outside of your, your CX team. Approach your stakeholder group your approving executives, let's say, with language that they already use and understand. And I'm not insulting their intelligence. I'm just saying if you come to them with all this CX language of, you know, empathy maps and journey maps and service blueprints and customer intimacy, it begins to sound to them like you're asking for a net new add-on of a huge body of work, mm. as opposed to what I said earlier, you know, empathize first, but then, you know, the earlier comment about come to them demonstrating that you understand their critical objectives or outcomes and how your proposed work can be an accelerant for them using perhaps funding that they've already got allocated, but you know could, could be deployed more effectively based on using CX practices. So you know th those are a couple of basics that I find really helpful about overcoming objections. And then finally, I think you might have heard me talk a little bit about this in, in the Orlando conference. You, you know, there are ROI models that can show the the payback on improving customer experience. And the, there's financial tooling that, uh, you know, one can develop to, to show very clearly to decision makers, okay, if we invest X in improving some aspect of the customer experience, there will be financial yield in one of several different ways. It could be an increase in top line revenue mm -hmm. could be an increase in retention, right? Um, modeling the long-term financial value of increased retention is super fun. Um, it could be by implication that last one also implies a reduction in cost of acquisition or total acquisition marketing costs. Um, and it also could be a reduction in operating expense. So we improve a customer pain point, that they were calling us a million times a year about, they no longer have to call that million times. Well, a million less calls into an operation center is actually pretty significant OPEX savings. So, so that's the third recommendation around the obstacles is, you know, there are ROI models that one can use.
Yeah. Yeah. No, the, those are great. Um, great, simple, simple things. Now, Brian, um, if we use the ROA model, right, what, what are some ways that we can, and you kind of alluded to them, but we can tap into not only the right side of the brain, but the left side of the brain as well, when it comes to trying to get buy-in from executives. Oh, sure. There's, um, I, I think, uh, you mentioned at the top of this, this podcast, the, the Heath brothers, I really yes. like the book switch. Yes. Uh, they, they really have a good framework for thinking about change management and, and how human beings process change. And the, one of the main models in that book is that, you know, people, have sort of an emotional decision-making component and a rational decision-making component. No one is strictly one or the other. Everyone has both in play at the same time. And the way I like to approach this is, um, you know, if you don't get alignment on the emotional side of the decision-maker, it, it is very hard to get them on board, no matter how beautiful or compelling your spreadsheet might be that you're using to appeal with their, their <laughs> rational side. Right. And so there are some storytelling tactics that, that I like to recommend for getting that emotional mm. connection. And let me see if I can remember these just off the cuff. So one is um, using the, the hero's journey as a storytelling model where the customer is the hero. And, you know, typical hero's journey, they have an objective and they have barriers they have to overcome. Well, if you frame that as, you know, the customer is our hero in the story, they have an objective X and they encounter these barriers with our brand, you know, that can be an emotional connection point. I've seen this work really well in healthcare. So I guess that would be a patient experience instead of customer experience. But, you know, I've, I've seen this done uh, where, for example, the hero is an expecting mother. And, you know, the hero's journey is that last, let's say, 48 or 24 critical hours leading up to and during and, and right after childbirth. And so you can imagine suddenly this becomes, you know, from a patient experience perspective, you're mapping out everything that happens in that window of time. And, you know, it's very, very um, visceral. So that that's one is this hero's journey construct. You know, an, another is um, competitive pressure, sort of um, showing your decision makers that, hey, our primary head-to-head -head competitive brands, X, Y, and Z, are already offering these enhanced experience uh, ideas that we're trying to pitch internally within our company. And so you have to read your audience. You have to you know, get a sense if that's going to motivate with your, your constituents or not. You know, at AAA, we have... Um, in our automotive vertical, we have one particular competitive brand that is sort of like the largest named competitor. And every now and then, um, you know, that we get a sense of they're doing something and, you know, we quite often win competitively against them. But, you know, when we perceive that there's an area that they might be pushing out ahead of us, that that's a useful way mm. to motivate action in, in the company. You know, yeah. So, um, in terms of these storylines for getting emotional um, connection, mm -hmm. the hero's journey is one. The competitive pressure, or some people call that, uh, almost like social shaming. I don't know that that's the best language for it, but you get the idea. Yeah. And then, um, you know, another which is a little more personal is if, if let's say, if I'm pitching to a head of marketing or a head of operations, you know, the reality is their future career path can very well be affected by successfully adopting and deploying 
the customer experience work I'm recommending. And so it's, you know, this is just human nature, right? Not only will they be more effective with the results for the function they lead, but it can very well help them with either career advancement or, you know, even just their own bonus scorecard items, perhaps, you know, depending on, on the company. So those are three. And then the fourth, you know, there is a special breed of human beings and I am a trained accountant, so I can say this, you know, who we do find spreadsheets with ROI calculators to be extremely emotionally stimulating. And so that, you know, that, that is kind of a linkage between the two is you've, you've got to get the emotional hook and then back to the financial. So the goal of all those emotional storylines is, you know, you just want to evoke a response from your board or your C-level that's sort of like, I didn't know we must fix this now. How can we address this? What help do you need? You know, you want, you want them to sort of come at you then and, flip the tables and say, how, how fast can we address this? You know, mm -hmm. just have to be ready mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. Bring, um, connect, connect the dots here with the analogy the Heath brothers used with the rider and the elephant. Sure. I'll see if I can do this justice. So, so they use the visual of a human being, a rider sitting on an elephant, riding an elephant. And their, their point is, if you think of that elephant as the emotional side of a decision-making, and you think of the rider as the, the rational, analytical side of decision-making, you know, their point is the rider, the rational side, could have the perfect ROI spreadsheet, the perfect project plan, the perfect timeline, the perfect implementation roadmap, all the rational things mm -hmm. that you would need. Mm -hmm. But the, the visual of the, the rider sitting on the elephant is saying... If that elephant is not agreeing to move, in other words, if you haven't gotten the emotional traction, the elephant side of the equation, that rider's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to add to that, but that's sort of my net of, of how they talk about that model in the book. Yeah, I mean, you know, I heard it said another way. I, I agree with what you just said. I, I heard it said, uh, you know, all, all buying decisions are based on emotion and justified with rationale. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but um, e even the example you gave of the ROI calculator being an emotional connection for someone who's an accountant or a financial person, it, you know, there's still some, you could feel the emotion come when you see those numbers work out the way you'd like to see them. For sure. And and that's that's kind of the, the survey of the land when it comes to a key stakeholder analysis is really understanding that each person is an individual and there are different things that really connect with with different people in your audience. And if you're, especially if you're doing any one-on-one -on -one stuff, that you want to make sure you you speak to each person individually, and not not about what 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 jazzes you up, but really what jazzes them up. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if if you're a CX practitioner who already has the skills, oftentimes we forget to do CX on these internal clients. We focus mm. so much on improving for the end customer. Yeah. So that's another soundbite I like to use a lot with my team is just like, don't forget to do CX on your internal clients, meaning do empathy, understand their priorities, needs, wants, drivers, right? And go from there. And that brings down a lot of walls, just, mm. just that one step. So why is it, what are some of the common mistakes? And I kind of alluded to the one, which I admitted I was guilty of, which is, you know, hero versus guide. And I, 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 I guess I just, I don't know, got so gung ho and, and the temptation to, to throw out all this language to somehow impress people. And it's not, it's not what they're going to be impressed by. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so what 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 are some what are some common uh, other m- mistakes that CX leaders make that we want to avoid? Well, I think um, biting off more than you can chew is mm. pretty pretty common, you know. And so I'm a big eighty twenty principle person, and you know I think there are those high impact items that disproportionately move the needle. And so I think having a little bit more patience up front to make sure that you're really understanding the system that's in operation. And I don't mean technical system. I just mean, you know, the system of cause or multiple causal factors and then ultimate effect and really have your arms around that before you start trying to go execute things. I also think um, starting, this is said maybe a different way, starting with a smaller scope where you're a little bit insulated and where your your risk is a little bit lower. Um, I also like if you have you know multiple functions or business lines or verticals. I like starting with one where you've already got existing or strongest relationships with mm-hmm. the top leaders who are running that function. Mm-hmm. So those those are a few things that I think can be helpful to kind of like you know nurture the CX practice as it's growing and establishing credibility in the business. And that's exactly what we did at AAA. You know, we started with one vertical, uh, with one particular issue in question and had some very significant success with that, which resulted in, you know, that business line, that vertical asking for more, and then other verticals and business lines sort of saying, well, you know, what could you do for us? You know? Yeah. I want to ask you before we get to this next question about maybe the biggest aha that you, you took away, um, so far, in your CX world is, um, what do you, what do you do or how involved are you when things really get tough? When, 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 when the capacity to serve customers doesn't quite equal demand and I'll share a personal experience, uh, with me. So my, my mom lives down in Florida where with you, she's a little further South and she, she had, um, an accident, a lady cut in front of her and she, ended up getting an injury uh, to her legs. She's okay now, but it was a long recovery. Anyway, I had to get involved and fly down there and get get the car towed from the junkyard. Sadly, it was that bad to uh, to her house so that they can do a claims adjustment on it and tell me it was totaled, which we already knew. And um, And so waiting for that car was like, what was interesting is somebody's coming and they're on their way and then they're not, you know, and what happened and they're, I'm sending another driver and I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's a summer, it's Florida, it's 92 and humid. What if, what if it was her? What if she was still in the accident? And we, so I was just thinking, you know, it can't just be AAA. It's got to be other people. But I, I think there was, maybe a labor shortage or compared to the demand of people getting in accidents and needing roadside assistance. What do you do? And from a CX standpoint, can you do to help out that situation? Yeah, you bet. What year was that? I'm curious. So that was uh, about a year and a half ago. Yep. So sort of um, a couple of things here, and this might get into a little bit of the operational weeds, but you know, the, again, with 30 million service events a year, we have massive, massive operational teams with huge complex forecasting and mm. labor supply, you know, models and strategies in place that overlay against, you know, all the economic factors and even like post COVID, which would have been that, that time frame. 
so, so there's a lot on the operations side that's done in near real time. And not only that, I, I want to make sure I, I say that, you know, we have very close relationships with all local law enforcement and emergency responders. So anytime it's a life-threatening situation, you know, there, there's certainly prioritization and, and bringing in all the right parties, which is, um, you know, we do an extremely, exceedingly good job of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now beyond that, what you're describing is a huge labor plus field service plus supply chain logistics puzzle that is highly complex and the subject of quite a bit of internal effort analysis, experimentation, and innovation all the time. In the six years I've been here, we've just we continue to make massive, incredible advances in how well we plan for and deliver you know, extremely high top box satisfaction. So where my team comes into play now on that is uh, we do maintain um, a very large transactional base of surveys that come in off of those roadside service events, specifically to your example. Mm. So we receive something like 3 million survey responses a year. And, you know, that gives us tons of real-time feedback. Uh, We use one of the major... um, loyalty platforms to manage all of that surveying and data analysis. And it includes real-time flags for customers who survey and indicate that, you know, it was the, you know, bottom box, those go for immediate follow-up and action. And beyond that, on the operations side, you know, we monitor those 30 million events as they're unfolding in real-time, especially to see which ones uh, we should flag because they have certain characteristics. So, extreme severe inclement weather or extreme heat, uh, different times of day, um, you know, different factors about who is in the vehicle or what the conditions are, you know, those things are all monitored in a systematic fashion to flag and escalate. And there's lots of, um, lots of ways that we try to control for that. So again, I, I, I knew I was going to go a little bit deeper operationally based on the question, but am I getting at what you asked? Yeah. Yeah, no. And I I think there's a good kind of lesson for somebody who may be newer to CX is that, you know, it all, it all works together that you need to have methodology in place. And like you said, like it's, um, it's, it's a work in progress. You're continually tweaking and working and learning, learning from what you've learned and trying to make adjustments. Yeah. All right. So that the question I was leading to, and I don't know if it's connected to the last question or not, but um, you've been doing this a little bit for a little bit of time, to say the least, what's your biggest aha? Wow. So this is the like, what advice would I give my younger self kind of a question? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, I would tell my younger self several things. Be patient. Um, Remember that people are people first. So engage in the human side with the empathy steps that we talked about earlier in this conversation and uh you know you actually mentioned another one mark which is you know like uh you let go of the idea that there's a single right answer that the leader must know Mm. and you know we see more and more of this in today's work environment we talk a lot more about psychological safety and comfort with admitting the unknown, you know, the agile frameworks talk a lot about, you know, rapid iteration, which requires comfort with failure or with testing and, you know, modifying on the fly. So like this idea of flexibility and that it's an iterative process that ideally works best when people closer to customers are running those 
iterations as opposed to this sort of old school model that a single wise top leader is going to have all the right answers. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I want to come back to to something that you and I talked about earlier, like not the last time we talked. Yeah. Um, and and it's you. It was your story, so I don't want to. But I want to ask you about it because I think our listeners might be interested. As you use this, Alien and Clark Kent. Um, if oh sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. This has to do with um, earlier in this conversation we talked about if I were just getting started you know, what would be some sort of cautions? Where would I start? And then also what are some potential pitfalls, right? So I like to describe this as, you know, if you're going to a stakeholder, a board, a C-level, an ops leader, and asking them to invest in a CX project, if you approach them with the CX language, that sounds like alien talk to them. Mm. So um, the, the reference Mark is making here is in, in a presentation he saw me do, I actually put up a visual with a you know an alien and Clark Kent side by side. And the point was, if you come to them with language they don't understand, you are going to alienate them and yes. you're not going to get the traction. But the point was, you know, if you come to them using language they understand, uh, relatable to them and not threatening, like picture Christopher Reeves as Clark Kent, right? Just Just another person. Just talking to them in their own language, the walls will come down and you'll get the traction. Now, I like to think of CX as, you know, superpowers and accelerants. So, you know, Clark Kent still has an awful lot of of power he can bring to bear as Superman, but like that's not immediately evident and thus doesn't turn off or distract um, decision makers. So I hope I'm doing it justice. But that was the idea is, you know, you you can approach them with different language and you're going to get very different results. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, that was worth going back. It did, it did, it did cover the same, some of the same ground we talked about, but really great analogy of that um, analogy and, and to think about just so important. It's so easy to get into our own, you know, VOC and NPS and JM and uh, OSAT. And it was just, the list goes on. And it's ever growing. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is come alongside them, come on the same side of the table, not be on the other side, right? And and engage them and resonate with them. And therefore we need to talk their language, not an alien language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What what fun. What a great conversation. Um and just I just wanna I I what you just talked about with the Clark Kent. Um, you are, you embody that you oh. are that person. You're that you're that comfortable, easygoing. Okay, Brian, where are we going? I, I'm ready to follow. Thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. I think our listeners will agree. And I, I want to, um, thank you so much before we go. I want to, um, ask if they would like to get a hold of you, what would be a good way to reach you? Yeah. LinkedIn is probably the best. It's just Brian with a Y, Brian Sander. If you put that in AAA in there, I'll pop right up and, and feel free to reach out with any questions or um, any ways that I can help you. Okay. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show. You bet, Mark. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.
www.thepowerofthenow.com.